Well, good morning. It is good to see everybody. I want to welcome you again to First Colony Christian Church. If you are a visitor with us, my name is Mike Skinner. I am the lead pastor here at the church, and we are going through a series on the Apostles' Creed. And if you're not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, some of us maybe grew up in traditions where we were familiar with it. For some of us, it might be brand new. It is one of the earliest creeds of the Christian faith. The creed is the statement of belief. And so the earliest Christians, all the way back to the second and third century, had this statement of faith that started out as a a question and answer system that they would use in baptisms to affirm who they believe in. And, And we're using the Apostles' Creed not because the Creed has any sort of special authority in and of itself, not because the Creed is our definition of whether you're part of our church or not, or whether you're really a Christian or not, but because the Creed is and has been seen throughout the history of the church for thousands of years as a faithful summary of who the the scriptures present God to be. Just like the moon takes the light of the sun and absorbs it and reflects it back, so the the creed takes the truth of the scriptures and, and, and like a sponge, it soaks it all up into this dense statement of faith. And, and what we want to do is we want to kind of squeeze the sponge out and look into the scriptures and see what, what we can learn about God. Now, last week we, we started with just the phrase, I believe, uh, and looked at um, what it means to say we believe as Christians, the, the vocabulary we have for faith. And, and, and we talked about how faith as Christians is less a belief in certain truths, certain propositional statements like two plus two equals four, and more relationship. It's, it's more belief in someone and not a belief that something is true. And, and so the creed tells us we believe in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And Christian faith by nature is, is a trust, is a commitment. It's, it's a, a relationship that we grow into over time. I'll read for you the Apostles' Creed. It, it reads like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified died and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Tuesday, I'm driving down 59, and I am in the right-hand lane if, if you're familiar with 59, going north uh, around Highway 6, and um, there's a, a big jacked-up truck on the feeder uh, lane next to me, and he's about to run out of space and have to exit onto Williams Trace, and so he wants to get over into the freeway. And so he decides the best way to do this, because we're in Houston, kind of Houston, close enough to drive this way, is just to swerve into my lane. Now, I drive, correction, drove, a little silver Honda Civic. And in a matchup between my Civic and this big jacked up red truck, the truck was going to win 10 times out of 10. So I swerved to avoid getting hit and into that collision. And as I swerved, my my wheels locked up on me and I started to tailspin. And I spun all the way across four lanes of traffic uh, midday here on, on 59. And it was a, a, a very surreal experience. Um, it all happened in just a few seconds, but I can very much remember thinking, I'm about to die. Like, this is how I go. 
Um, hopefully, right, I've made a good impact. Hopefully, they embellish this story a little bit so it's a little cooler and he swerved and died. Um, but I'm like, this is, this is it right here. I mean, this, this, is, this is the end. I'm, I'm going driver's side exposed to oncoming traffic across four lanes here, 59. And it all happens in a couple of seconds, but I distinctly remember thinking like at any moment, a Suburban going 80 miles an hour is going to just broadside me and not hit my car, like hit my body. That actual truck is going to go right through that door and hit my body. And I can remember as I'm driving, kind of not driving, that's a strong word, shifting across, getting to the point where I was like, I think I'm out of traffic. Like, I think somehow I've avoided all of the traffic. I don't think I'm going to get hit by a car. And so then you, you go to thought two, which is there's a concrete barrier barreling towards me at like 60 miles an hour now. And so you brace for impact, which you're not supposed to do. You get hurt more if you brace, but it's hard not to do. And just boom, collision into that concrete barrier. And police cars and ambulances. And, you know, I was really lucky because the guy slowed down to make sure that I was all right and then drove off um, so that, you know, he, he couldn't get in trouble for this. Um, if you were on the road and you remember seeing some big scene on 59, that was me. Uh, you uh, drove fast. Um, and cars totaled, right? Big disaster. But it was one of those situations where first you got to be like, hey, I got a day off of work. Okay, I don't got to teach today. It's not that bad. And one of those like where you walk away going, that could have been so much worse. I mean, I'm walking away. My neck hurts a little bit. My shoulder's a bit banged up, but I'm alive. And talking to the cop who had showed up first in the scene, he was like, you'd be surprised how often this happens. And, and then thinking through really statistics, right, on driving. Like, it's a pretty dangerous activity. A lot of people get hurt, unfortunately. A lot of people die sometimes driving. It was one of the situations where you kind of cut your losses, right, and count your victories and go on walking away. And so I canceled class that day and... uh was at class the next day and, and was like, hey, I didn't bail on you. I didn't have a car, so I'm here. And, and they immediately said, wow, God must have been protecting you. And, and I certainly had this kind of sense, right, that God had been protecting me, that, that, that God had been looking over me, that, that a large part of what had happened that day um, and, and my ability to be safe and to, to walk out of that was because of, of God's loving hand and his, his provision and his providence over my life. Um, and I, I kept hearing that refrain throughout the week as I was telling the story. And it brings us, I think, to our, our line here in the Apostles' Creed, which is, what do we mean when we say the word God? When we say that God protected you, when we say that God spoke to you, when we say that God does this or does that or is like this or is like that, what do we really mean? Because what I've found as a pastor and a theology professor is for most Christians and, and really just for most people in the Western world, God is just a generic term for us. It's kind of a generic catch-all term for, for something that's not human, some supernatural being who probably created the world and who probably is all-powerful and, and knows everything and is everywhere. And, and I once did a poll at a Christian school of 600 middle and high schoolers and said, tell me about God. I want you to give me a definition of God and then tell me three things about him. And I got back all the answers, calculated them up. And when I went through how these 
Christian students who had been educated, grown up in the church, described God, what I realized was, except for two responses out of 600 or so, every single one of these responses could apply to just about any God of any religion. It was generic. God is loving. Well, okay. I mean, I agree with that statement, right, as a Christian. But if you ask a Jewish person if they think God is loving, they'd say, yeah. You'd ask uh, a Muslim friend if they think God is loving, they'd say, yes, God created everything. Once again, sure, but kind of a generic term, kind of a generic word. God knows everything. God is all-powerful. The two students who I think put something distinctively Christian down about who God is, um, both mentioned Jesus. And as a Christian, I was like, yes, you nailed it, right? They said, God is Jesus, or God is Jesus' father. Or, Or I think one put, Jesus is God's son. And I said, now we're getting into the realm of Christianity, into the realm of distinctively Christian thought about God. I, I have a big concern that sometimes we worship a generic God, and because we worship a generic God, we live generic lives. Right? Our lives don't look that much different from anybody else, from an atheist or an agnostic or someone who is a member of another religion. It's, it's more of a cultural thing. We're just kind, polite people who kind of try to be good citizens, contribute to our society. We have a generic God. We live generic lives. And we, we kind of have a, a generic understanding of how God relates to us. We, we, God kind of generically loves us. But we don't really quite think through, you know, how he relates to us when we sin and, and what is sin and, 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 and what his eternal purposes are and all of those things. And, and what the creed is going to force us to do because of what Scripture forces us to do is get very Christian, very distinctively Christian when we start talking about God. And so the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And what I want to talk about this morning, there's so much that we could talk about from that one phrase. And because I've committed to only making this a 12-week series and not like 16 years, um, we can't go through this as slow as as maybe I'd like to. And so there's some we'll be passing over here. There's so much on just those three lines. But but I want to talk about the title Father, because I think in this phrase we get one title for God, for the Christian God, Father, and we get two statements about God. Almighty, or descriptions, and maker of heaven and earth. So we start with, I believe in God the Father. When we say that God is Father as Christians, this is a biblical term. We call God Father because we find that in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, um, the God of the Israelites, his name was Yahweh. He was often considered the Father of his people Israel, generally in a collective sense. Um, And so in Hosea, God says, Yahweh says, um, Israel is my son, and I fed him and taught him how to grow and held him close. And and sometimes you get a generic understanding of the Father in the Old Testament. So in Psalm 68, um, the, the psalmist says that God is the father of orphans and the protector of widows. 
So not maybe just Israel, but God has this father-like relationship to all people, particularly in the psalm there, the oppressed, particularly people who perhaps need some more provision and protection. But then when you get to the New Testament, father becomes the dominant way to talk about God. It becomes the most used designation to refer to God. And there's lots of reasons for this. The biggest reason is because that's how Jesus referred to God. And as Christians, we often take our cue from Jesus, which is probably a good thing. And Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father, our Father. And Jesus talks often about your Father, your Father in heaven, my Father, my Father in heaven. And so as Christians, we call God Father. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than happy to, to grab one of those. John chapter 15, or I'm sorry, John chapter 14. John 14, we'll pick it up in verse 1. I want to think through what it means when we call God Father. John 14, verse 1, this is Jesus talking. And he says this to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, or it could be translated, you believe in God. Believe also in me. This is what the creed tells us, right? I believe in God. I believe in the Son, Jesus. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And watch what happens in this next conversation, because I think it's one of the most important statements in the Bible, particularly when it comes to talking about who God is, what we mean as Christians when we talk about God. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. You keep talking about God as your Father, just to show us him, and, and we'll be set. We'll be good to go. There's nothing more we could ever want. There's nothing more we could ask for. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Have I been with you that long? You don't know who I am? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming Philip's here a little confused. Like, all right, Jesus, you didn't understand the question. Um, I'm asking to see the Father. Of course, we've seen you. Jesus, though, explains, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. When Philip asks here to see the Father, Jesus says, whoever has seen him has seen the Father. To say God the Father is to give the most precise statement about the character of God as Christians have come to know him in the person of Jesus. Jesus says, the Father has been perfectly revealed through me. And while we're different 
people. We're different persons. There's some distinction between us. We are united in such a way that to know one of us is to know all of us. When Christians say that God is Father, we don't first mean that God is like a father as we know from our human experience what parents are like, fathers and mothers. This is a common misunderstanding. We normally think that's what we mean when we say God is Father. Well, just like fathers love us and protect us and know us and give us life, that's what God is like, right? That's true, and Jesus will sometimes talk about God in that manner, but to primarily say God is the Father is to say from eternity God is the Father. Why? Because Jesus is his Son. To say that God is the Father is not to give him a title of analogy. It's to give him a true title that's been true of him from eternity. Do you see the difference there? Christians believe in a triune God, which means uh, eternally, from, from the very beginning, God has existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to say, to say God the Father is to say the God who sent Jesus, who has been revealed in Jesus who then also with Jesus sent the Spirit to be poured out into his people. To say God the Father immediately takes our eyes to the second article of the creed, which is his Son. Father is a relational title. You can't be a father without a son. To say God the Father, to call God Father, is to give God a distinctively Christian title. This is why when Christians talk as specific as they can, we say, not God in the generic form, we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father. And by that we mean the Father of Jesus. When, when someone asks you, I'm assuming that most of us do, we might not, and this is a, okay, this is a place, we like to be a place here for questions and, 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 and doubts. And, and I don't think God's scared of any questions or any doubts that we might have, but I'm assuming most of us at least probably believe in God. We believe in the supernatural. And if someone were to ask you, why do you believe in God? I think we'd get a lot of interesting answers. I think we'd learn a lot about each other. I think we'd, we'd learn a lot about um, thinking about God and, and our paths to the various places where we are in our faith. Um, but what sociologists have found, so sociologists are people who study humans, so they'll go to a culture, right? And they'll study how they act and how they talk and they'll report about it. And a lot of times, right, the way they talk and act are different. So they might say, we value these things, but then they go and do other things. And the sociologist kind of objectively kind of writes a report about it. Um, well, sociologists, when they study Christians and conversion, conversion stories, and not even just Christianity, it applies to all religions. It's very fascinating What they find is that most people describe their conversion into believing in a God in terms of an intellectual discovery. Um, So I was sitting down with the ontological argument in front of me and worked my way through it. And at the end, I was like, I believe in God. Or I was reading some peer-reviewed journal articles and I got all the way through them and I said, I believe in God. Or I was talking to somebody, and they made a good point that I couldn't counter. And so I was like, well, I guess I believe in God. We, we kind of use uh, our story as kind of an example of deductive reasoning or inductive reasoning. We somehow come to believe in God. What sociologists have found, though, is that's almost never true. 
That's almost never how people of any religion are converted. It almost always happens one of two ways. Through birth, you grow up in that culture and with that belief, even though you might doubt it, right? Even though you might walk away for a little bit, and through relationships, and through coming to trust and lean on and enjoy people who have those same beliefs. When someone, if someone were to ask me, why do I believe a God exists? Why do I believe there's more than just this and more than just us? While I've always believed that God exists for the most part, it's kind of what I grew up in, right? I mean, to me, believing that God exists was almost the same as believing that I was an American, right? It's just what I was told. It's the environment I grew up in. That didn't mean I always liked America, didn't mean I always liked God. It didn't mean I always right, fully trusted and believed and was 100% on board with any of those things. It was just kind of the reality that I lived in. Um, so I kind of always more or less grew up with, with this kind of belief in God. But if someone were to ask me today, why do you believe in God? It would not be because there's some kind of intellectual argument that I can't get my mind around. It would be because I believe in God because of Jesus. Because I believe that Jesus died and resurrected. And I believe there's really not a good answer historically for why the early Christian movement started the way it did if Jesus did not resurrect. Why the Romans weren't able to provide a body. Why Jesus, unlike dozens of other Jewish messiahs in the first century who were crucified and their movement died because they were dead and kings don't die, why it was different with Jesus. Why his, instead of dying with his death, exploded with the claim of resurrection and changed the world. But it's that belief in Jesus that then makes me work backwards into believing into God. Do you see how that works? I believe in Jesus, and so then I have to go back and look at all the things he said and did. And Jesus talks a lot about God the Father. He seems to think the God of Israel is his father. He seems to think he's united with him in a very unique, special way. He talks about being with him from eternity, before creation. And so I go, well, then I guess I must believe in God the Father. And Jesus is very explicit about sending a spirit. In just a few verses in John 14, he says, I'll send you a helper, the spirit of truth. And so I say, well, then I also believe in the Holy Spirit. And it's the person of Jesus and it's the work he's done in history that convinces me to believe in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, since I've come to that belief, I've obviously had experiences with this triune God. I've obviously grown into this relationship. Now my belief is, is a little bit more um, based in, in kind of my own personal experiences and less in kind of a historical observation about Jesus. But it's Jesus that convinces me God exists and that the Spirit is real. And it's because of Jesus that I call God Father, that Christians call God Father. There's a statement, it's really dense, but I think it's, it's good, so I'll just repeat it for you. It says this, We know God as Father because Jesus calls him Father, reveals himself as God's Son, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit enables us to share in that relationship through adoption. God is Father because Jesus calls him Father. 
And Jesus says, I am his son. And through the spirit, you can be sons and daughters as well. And so when we say, I believe in God, the father, we are already talking about God in a distinctively Christian way. This is not a characterless God. God the Father is the God who was revealed in the person of Jesus. The scriptures say Jesus shows you the Father. Everything you could ever want to know about who God is, what he's like, you see in the person of Jesus. And all of that is found shorthand when we say God the Father, the one who sent his Son, the one who from eternity has enjoyed a relationship with his Son. Now, there is a truth to comparing God as Father to our human fathers or to parenthood in general as we've experienced it. And Jesus does talk about this. If you flip to Matthew um, chapter 7 is what it will be. Matthew chapter 7. This is right after Jesus has taught the disciples to pray to our Father. Jesus is teaching some more about the Father's character. He says this in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. To the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now, Jesus is really funny, and this is a joke. And sometimes we don't always get it because it's like written down and jokes aren't quite as funny all the time when they're written down. And because it's in red letters and it's, we're like, Jesus is talking. I'm not sure I should laugh at something Jesus said. And because it's just a time, you know, difference and so different references. But watch the picture here, right? The picture is your kid comes to you. We've got lots of people with kids in the room. They say, Daddy, Mommy, I want some bread. You're like, this is probably an easy request, not an iPod or, you know, motorcycle, whatever. And you go, okay, let me go to the cabinet, get you some bread. And you find a nice little rock that looks just enough in the shape of a loaf of bread. And you turn around and throw it at their head. (laughs) Jesus goes, that doesn't sound like a parent, does it? And he goes, which of you, if their son asked for a fish... We would give him a serpent. Now, what you need to know is in, in Galilee, where Jesus is talking, um, the most common fish in those waters was a very slender, thin fish. would have looked a lot like a snake. I mean, imagine how fast CPS would be called on you if your child's like, Daddy, Mommy, Papa, can I have a fish? And you reach into the cabinet, grab a rattlesnake, and go, here you go, have fun. He goes, that's not how parenting works, right? And he says, he he continues on, he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and this is one of those moments where Jesus just subtweeted us. I don't know if you're familiar with that, okay? That's a social media term where you insult somebody kind of indirectly. And so we kind of miss out on this because we move toward the positive example. But he, he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. We're like, well, wait a minute. Did you just, was that an insult? Was that us? Okay, yeah, we get it. He says, if you, who are really bad at this life thing, y'all aren't the greatest, right? Have any of you gotten a parenting award? Best dad ever, that coffee mug. They sell that to everybody, okay? I mean, it's true of you. You are the best 
father and, and mother in the world. He says, if, 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 if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will you, Father in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? He says, look, even, even human parents understand this desire. When a, when a life is born, there's this intense connection, right? Where, where you can't even always understand it, be like, I would die for that. I remember when my brother was born. I was 14 years old, and so, so it was similar, not the same thing as having a kid by any means, but I was old enough to kind of observe it a little bit more objectively, right? And I can remember holding him. He was premature. They thought he was going to die for a couple of weeks. I can remember holding him for the first time and, and being overwhelmed. Like I had never felt what I was feeling. I didn't have words for it. I didn't particularly like it really at the moment like this like really ugly looking tiny little miniature human like had captured my heart and at that moment I was like I would I would die for this thing and he's not done anything for me I don't even know what his personality's like but just by virtue of his existence I love him as much as I love myself. I want to protect him. I want to see him grow. I want to see him happy. I would sacrifice whatever it would take to see that happen. God says, look, if that's how you see your children, just imagine how much more perfect Heavenly Father looks at his children. And when your children ask you for good gifts and you want to give them those good gifts, just imagine when you ask God for something, how much he desires to bless you and how unlimited he is in his resources. God's never wanted to give you something gone, I just got to wait till the next payday. Or that's just not going to work with a mortgage. He's got unlimited resources. Now the question gets begged, right? Why do we sometimes we ask for things and don't get them? It's a question maybe we can never answer. There's a scholar, though, who has a nice little one-liner. He says, perhaps we can say God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want to want him to answer them, but perhaps he always answers the prayers the way we ought to have prayed them. The idea here being, just like your child often doesn't know what's best for them, they might ask for something thinking it's best, but you as a father or a mother know that's not really going to help you out in the long term. This is how God deals with us as his children. And so all the prayers he answers, he answers as if we would have prayed them knowing as much as he knows about what's good for us, about what will truly grow us and nourish us and, and provide for us. Now for some to call God Father historically has, has been a, an obstacle. You, you have perhaps grown up with an abusive, horrible dad. Or, or perhaps you didn't have a father. And to call God father is to refer to him as something that you can't relate to or that you relate to poorly. And, and people have, have approached this problem in a couple of ways. One is to, to refer to, well, perhaps we can talk about God as mother. Um, and, and you might kind of think like, ah, the feminists are taking over, right? Um, but there, there is biblical basis for that kind of talk. The scriptures often refer to God in feminine terms. 
just like mothers provide for their children. Um, those motherly analogies are used of God throughout the scriptures. Um, you, I taught high schoolers for five years, which means you answer questions you never thought you'd have to answer. Um, one of which was one day, and I think, I don't know, it might have been you back there. Um, one day someone walked in and goes, hey, does God have a penis? <laughs> was that? I'm calling you out on the spot. No? Were you there for that? And I go, well, this is not something I thought I'd be talking about today. I mean, Jesus, I'm assuming, had a penis, if you're going to make me say that. Um, I'm comfortable. God himself, though, is not gendered, right? But because God is the source of male and female, they both find their origin in him. So it's just as equal to say God is female as God is male in the sense that these are just analogies we're giving to him. But a lot of people say we still need to be faithful with that language Jesus gave us, Father and Son. And so perhaps a solution might be to, to simply instead say that the fatherhood of God judges and provides a standard by which we look at all other fathers and parents. I have a friend who had a horrible father, and I once mentioned this to him. I was like, so, you know, how do you do this? Does it bother you when you call God Father? And he goes, actually, I've, I've approached it a completely different way. Like, to me, it's great. I never had a father I could call and really trust and rely on and love. And so now I do. Like, it's not a negative example for me. Like, it's more positive than it probably would have been if I had a good example. I, I, can, I can trust and lean on, on this father. Parents, fathers, and mothers, your job in relating to your children is defined and judged next to the fatherhood of God over his creation. In Ephesians chapter 3, I won't make you turn there. There's a, a passage that's very popular. It mentions the, the height and width and depth of God's love that surpasses all understanding. You've probably heard that passage before. Um, but at the very beginning of it, it says, um, We bow before the Father from whom all families in heaven and earth get their name. Um, you'll find a little note there in your Bible. Since to the bottom, the note says, The real word for families is fatherhood. It's an interesting verse. Most people skip over, don't understand. But, but what happens here is Paul saying, we bow before the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name, gets its power, gets its source in heaven and on earth. All parenthood derives from first the Father's love for Jesus and then the Father's love for those united to Jesus through his Spirit. To say, I believe in the Father is to make a distinctively Christian claim. It's to make an uh, allegiance claim. It's to say, I believe in um, the Father, and so I will obey him. I will trust him. I will rely on him. Now, the next two lines, right, almighty and maker of heaven and earth, these fall in line with God the Father. But you have to be careful because they're not characterless. So when we say God is the creator of all things, we don't mean a generic God who has no character. We say the Father is the maker of all things. And by that we mean the Father of the Son, the Father fully revealed through Jesus, the Father who sent his Spirit so that we might have a relationship with him. He created all things. And that informs how we'd imagine creation and how we'd imagine his relationship with creation. And when we say almighty, 
we have got to be careful because there's this dark tendency in, in history, philosophy, and even in Christianity to worship raw power and to imagine God as this pure potential. And what's really God above all other things is just the ability to do whatever you want. And so God could lie to you. God could decide to go back on his promise of salvation. God could, right? He's omnipotent. You might get into these logical puzzles, like can he make a triangle with six sides? Can he make a rock so heavy he can't lift it, right? That's not what the scriptures say when they talk about God's power, and that's not what the creed says. Notice, Almighty is not God. The Father is God. Almighty is a description of the Father. God's power is not characterless. God's power, his almightiness, is the power of the Father, who is by his nature love, who for all eternity has existed as love, loving the Son and the Spirit, seeking to distribute and expand that love to his creation. The creator of heaven and earth is the Father, the one who out of an overflow of love for his, his, his creation decided to pursue and save. And it's important when we talk about creation to make sure we, we don't think of creation in the abstract. To, to say that God made heaven and earth, we need to be very specific. We need to, to think about what it is in creation. All of us have these things that catches your breath that makes you stop in awe and wonder. For me, it's orca whales. Something about them. So majestic. The fact that they exist and their social nature, I mean, it just blows my mind. Lindsay can attest. She'll walk in, and I'm sitting on the couch looking at my iPad. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, go away. I'm watching orcas. <laughs> Free Willie. Um, could be the, the stars for you. It could be a flower. I mean, it could be all kinds of different things. That's what we mean by creation. That's God's beauty and imagination and love at work. And he creates, and he creates all things, everything. Um, and he doesn't create once and step back. And this is the beautiful part of who our Father is, who the Almighty Father is. The, the scriptures say that the Father is not a deistic God. A deistic God is someone who creates and then steps back from creation, like a watchmaker. He winds it up, and then he steps back, and it just kind of runs on its own. We sometimes accidentally think about God that way. God has created these natural laws, and so the sun just comes up. He doesn't have to do anything for the sun to come up, and the grass just grows. God doesn't have to do anything. He set the world up that way. The problem is that's not how Scripture speaks about God's relationship with creation. In Psalm 104, there's a, a celebration of, a, of the wonder that creation is something that God does every day. God summons and controls the force of nature. He establishes and maintains the boundaries of the waters. He calls into being and nourishes the plants. He feeds the lions and the birds. He does this not once, but always. Not in Genesis does God say, I want there to be plants. Every day God says, I want there to be plants. I want the sun to come up. In the New Testament, we're told Jesus holds the world together by the power of his word. God creates and then sustains. 
The only reason we exist right now, the only reason our molecules are holding together is because God is actively desiring it to be so at this moment. There is no existence apart from God. The real question really is not, is there a God, but why would a God ever create anything? Why is there not just nothing? He wasn't lonely. He was perfectly loved among himself, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's amazing that he wills there to be something else besides him. And he continues to sustain that. God's creative work is used throughout the scriptures to talk about his salvific work, his saving work. Language of new creation is used to describe um, the, the salvation that God brings. God gave life to creation, and then he comes to individuals and communities and brings new life. And in God's most to-date masterpiece of creation, you have the resurrection of Jesus, where he recreates a human being. And that's not even where it ends. The scriptures say at the end of this grand redemptive story, God will still be making. He'll be making a new heaven and a new earth. God continues to make heaven and earth. God continues to sustain. And so I'm in that car and I'm going through four lanes of traffic. And and my faith tells me that God's not absent from that that scenario. He's not surprised about that scenario. And that when I get out of that car and walk away, I have only one response. Gratitude. The Father decided to continue to give me life. And here's the good news. I was talking with someone about this, like, I would have been fine dying. I mean, I really am okay with it. I know people think I'm, like, lying when I say that because I'm a pastor and you have to say that. I'd be, I'd be okay. Hopefully y'all would be sad, but I'd be fine. It'd just be a new type of life that God creates. And I'd be waiting on everla- everlasting life for God to create. We believe in the Father. He rules over all things with his love through his Son. And he brings life, not just once, but continually, every moment, in every situation. All of us right now, some of us might be in in situations that are, are dark, situations of death, and God desires to bring life. God desires to bring new life because he's the Father because relationship to creation is one of providence and love and care and closeness. I believe in the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Do you? Will you pray with me?